0: Guys, it's great to have you with us this morning. I want to welcome those that are joining us on our Edgewood campus, as well as those that are joining us online. And uh, before we dive into week three of our series called Behold, uh, I want to give uh, just a couple of quick updates and do a little housekeeping. And so uh, for those of you that are first-time guests, we're going to just encourage you to come into the family meeting real quick, uh, but we'll keep it brief. Uh, So hey, one, uh, this coming up Wednesday, we have Stone Point Family Christmas. uh, And so encourage you, uh, if you can make it, uh, we have uh, services on both campuses 5 and 630. Those are going to be candlelight services. going to be a little bit more brief than our normal uh, services, and so encourage you uh, to come and be a part of those if you can at both locations. would love to see you there. Uh, That also means, though, that next weekend, which is the last Sunday of the year, we will actually dismiss all services on both campuses. So for the last decade, the last Sunday of the year, we have encouraged people uh, to enjoy uh, some time together as family and just to Uh, In some ways, encourages sleep in, rest up, because we know that next year is going to be um, incredible and, and not only it's probably it's craziness as we've experienced this year uh, but we also have lots to accomplish as we uh, head into 2021 and so next weekend uh, there's not going to be a service online at Facebook you can go look for it uh, I encourage you if you want you can join another solid Bible based church and enjoy some time with them but next week I'm going to be sleeping in and so uh, while you're joining another church pray for your pastor okay because uh, I'm resting up and uh, that's what we're going to do and so I encourage you to do the same and enjoy that time together uh And those are a couple quick things. Cool deal. Awesome. Let's pray together. We're going to dive off into uh, Behold Week 3. Heavenly Father, we love you. Pray, God, that you would encourage us, uh, Lord, through your word today. Uh, Lord, may you teach us through your Holy Spirit. And uh, Lord, you enable us to do what's right. Uh, Lord, uh, I struggle sometimes to want to do what's right in my own eyes. Um, and sometimes I a lack the wisdom um, to, to walk in godliness. And so, Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, not only would you conform me uh, to your image, but I pray you would do the same thing for my friends and all the hearers of your word today. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak uh, candidly through your word and that you impress some things upon our hearts that maybe we haven't seen or thought about uh, or maybe we have seen or thought about but have struggled to apply. Lord, either way, I pray you would help us. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a couple of weeks ago, we began this series called Behold, and a Behold is a word that we see about a thousand times in our Bible. It just means to stand in awe or with amazement, to, to in sense, uh, pause, to consider. Uh, you see that oftentimes that before there is an utterance of God um, in many ways, whether it was through a prophet or in the case that we're about to read uh, about here in a few moments, an angel, uh, it was a, is an opportunity for the hearer to stand, to reflect, to pause, and to be amazed at what was going to be said next. And this idea of behold is literally just to take in and understand and consider the words that are going to be shared. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it would look like to behold the presence of God. Last week, we talked about beholding the peace of God. And this week, we're going to talk about beholding the power of God. And when we think about the power of God, I think there's a lot of confusion about what that looks like, even in our culture and amongst uh, different churches. Probably you've talked to different friends and may wonder, well, hey, why is it that you interpret the power of God this way? And how do you interpret the power of God this way. And so I want to dive off in that a little bit today and just kind of begin to walk through what it looks like to live in the power of God, namely for the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. And what does that look like as it manifests itself through God's chosen people? Uh, and so we're going to dive off into that. But let's begin in a passage in Luke chapter one, a story that we read a couple of weeks ago about Gabriel, the angel appearing to Mary. And in Luke chapter one, verse 30, It says that the angel uh, said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Uh, We address the idea that she probably didn't feel like she had found favor with God because any time that you would see an angel would show up probably uh, is not only a fearful experience, but also there's uh, a word that they're encouraging the the audience or the participant to to do. And so in this case, um, the angel goes on in verse 31 and says, And behold... Pause, consider, stand amazed, because you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary said what all of us would say How is this going to come to be since I'm a virgin? What she says is, is, this is inconceivable. It seems to be impossible. What you're, what you're asking to, tra- to transpire is, is something that is not going to happen in the natural realm, and, which is exactly uh, what Gabriel knew. Uh, so when he says, you're going to find favor with God, uh, he's saying, hey, God wants to use you. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. Behold, stand amazed because God's going to do something in you that is going to be incredible. And last, or a couple of weeks ago, we read this same phrase. We kind of passed over it. And so I want to come back to it. And in verse 35, it says, The angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. But what the angel said, he goes, hey, you're right, it is impossible, Mary. It is impossible for you um, as a virgin to conceive and bear a child that is not your own. It is impossible for anything to happen in the natural flesh, but that's why, we're, that's why I'm coming. That's why the Holy Spirit is going to descend upon you. He's gonna come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. In essence, what he's saying is, he goes, what you are going to be asked to do is not gonna be of your own accord, of your own strength. Or in your own power or might. It's not going to happen of your own intellect or wisdom. It is only going to happen because of the sovereign, supernatural goodness of God as He overshadows you. And what he says is the power is going to overshadow you. And that word power is the word dunamos, which means to have the strength or the might or the ability. It literally is the same idea throughout the entire New Testament, is to be strengthened in the Lord when we think about putting on the armor of God in Ephesians chapter six, we are strengthened in the Lord. It's the same idea. What, the, uh, what Gabriel, the angel says to Mary is, Mary, this is only gonna be happening because what is impossible with man is not impossible for God because he strengthens and establishes and he sustains you by the power and the strength of his might. And he goes, that's what's gonna happen. This idea of uh, strength and might that you find out in the, uh, in the New Testament is a similar idea in the Old Testament. Just in the Hebrew, the word's a little different. The word in the Hebrew is gabor, which means the same idea. Strength, might, um, in, in many ways, ability. It's the same word that we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, when you see Isaiah proclaim about uh, who, the, who Emmanuel, God with us, who he's going to be. And Isaiah said this, 700 years before the Christ child would come, he says, for us, there is a child that's going to be born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So we've talked about what it looks like to understand the peace of God, and we ha- that happens by the manifestation of the Spirit of God. But today, we want to talk about what it looks like for us to have the fullness of God in us, Because he is a mighty God. And if we think about him being a mighty God, then the question is, what does a mighty God want to do for people? And I can't think of a better story than in John chapter 5. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. In John chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. John, uh, the apostle whom Jesus loved, is going to tell us a story about an encounter with Jesus and a group of men who have been lame or paralyzed uh, for quite some time. But this account is of a man who has been there a very long time. And so in John chapter 5, we'll pick up in verse 1, it says... At this, uh, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids blind, lame, paralyzed, and one of them, a man, who had been there and as an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he asked him the question Do you want to be healed? So Jesus goes to a familiar place in the city where um, there is a a pool that is is there and it's surrounded by these different colonnades in which people are laid up around the pool, Uh, most of them because they don't easily move themselves. But also they're waiting, and what a lot of people would say historically was they were waiting on the the waters to, to be stirred supernaturally like maybe at some points in the year season of the year that that water would be stirred and if the first one could get to the water and dip themselves in the water they would be healed and so here it is, they seem to all be laying around this area and this guy has been there for 38 years. Now we don't know, uh, it was that he was born an invalid and has just kind of raised himself around that area or maybe uh, there was a point in time in his life where something happened to him, maybe he was run over by something or but now he's an invalid, he's lame, he's been at this particular place in life for 38 years. He finds himself laying there. Jesus goes up and picks out this man and says, do you wanna be healed? Which is a fantastic question. And I get it. You would go, well, of course you want to be healed. I mean, why would you not want to be healed? Matter of fact, if Jesus were to come to you and he were to go, hey, do you want to be healed? A lot of us would go, absolutely. And we might would fall to our knees and we would say, please, Father, heal me. Like, do something miraculous in me. But the reason that's such a great question is because of all of our responses. All of our responses are going to probably vary. And the question is, is, well, what are you going to heal me from? Like, what does that even look like? And the question also means is, what do you desire to be healed from? So here it is, this guy um, is asked this question and if you, if you look what he responds with, he's, the sick man answers him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred and while I'm going uh, up, another one steps down before me. That was his response. Jesus, the Messiah, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, ask this man, do you want to be healed of your infirmity? And the guy says, I can't get down to the water because everybody beats me there, which was not the question. The question was, do you want to be healed? And the response was, well, I guess, but I can't get to the pool fast enough. Somebody always beats me there, which is what I want you to hear. And I need you to lean in with me. Beholding the power of God is impossible if all you see is your past beholding the power of God is impossible if all you see is your past. So Jesus asks him a question, do you wanna be healed? And this guy goes, I can't, get, I can't get there. And all he sees is the reasons that he can't be healed. I'm not fast enough. Everybody else gets there. They've got an advantage over me. And in some ways you see this comparison trap that begins to ensnare this man. And he goes, I would love to be healed, but, 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 but. And I think the reality is, is if we were to ask ourselves the question, do I wanna be healed? A lot of us say, well, I would love to be healed, but. But I have this 38 year addiction that I can't kick. I would love to, but I have this, this issue going on in my family and in my marriage. I would love to, but I mean, you just don't know how I was raised. This family tree, this, this issue that's going on that, that you, you just don't know enough about. You, you just don't understand where I am. And here's what I would tell you is, Maybe the reason that we don't want to be healed is because we actually take advantage of the reasons we are the way we are. Like it is okay for us to continue to be this way because we've always been this way. Hey, the reason I'm this way is because my family is this way. Have you ever met somebody and they do something and then when they're done, you just go, oh, that's just John, you know John. Oh, hey, you know Susan, I mean, that's just Susan. Hey, don't worry about Susan, that's just the way Susan always responds. That right there is what I'm talking about. You cannot behold the power of God if everything in your past is what comes up. If it's just, this is who I am. This is just the way I, I was. This is the way I was. If that's the idea, then the question is, is then what is God here for? Like really, what is there to behold about his power if all you see is your past? Now, the reason I say it this way as well is because when you think about a group of paralytics, you need to realize that paralytics also have to eat. And you might ask yourself, well, how did they, they eat? If this man who's been a paralytic for 38 years probably isn't out in the fields working, uh, he probably doesn't have any real advantage in that way. He's waiting for the waters to be stirred up to get healing. Then the question is, is, how does he take advantage of his infirmity? And I would say as a beggar. What he's probably doing, he's probably laying around, probably crying out to people. He might even have a saxophone, which he's trying to play. But the reality is he's going, hey, I, if you don't mind, if you'll put a little something in this cup, I would love to eat today. And what he's using in some ways is his past infirmity as a means to provide himself that day. So Jesus comes along and he goes, hey, do you want to be healed? And he responds not yes, but in the essence, going with a bunch of excuses why he couldn't. And here's why. Could you imagine what this man is potentially going to give up if he said, yes, I want to be healed? It could even be his livelihood. It could be his lifestyle. My question is this. If God wanted to heal you from 38 years of substance abuse, what are you going to give up? Perhaps not just your lifestyle, but your means of income. If Jesus wanted to heal you from 20 years of, of, of a marriage problem, then what is he going to have to heal? Not only the, the problem that you have in your marriage, but probably your selfishness as a husband, Right? Like you're gonna to have to start looking at yourself and what you've contributed to the marriage if God really wanted to heal you. Do you see how oftentimes we can just kind of get in the ditch of our past and we can just kind of live there? Listen, you can't behold God and live in the past. That's not how it works. But I love what Jesus does anyway. He, he asks this question, do you wanna be healed? The guy responds, hey, everybody else is ahead of me. He's, he, he's looking at his past and all the reasons he couldn't. And then look what Jesus does. Jesus says to him, hey, get up, take your bed and walk. He didn't even give him a choice. He just got hey, walk, just take off. And the man is healed. Now listen, you can lay around as a paralytic and you can pretend to be not healed, I guess, right? Continue to take advantage of it. But when you realize all at once something supernatural has occurred, you're like, oh my goodness. And so he gets up and he walks. He takes his mat with him. And then look what, the, what happens. As it was on the Sabbath, the Jews then say to the man, hey, who is this? You know, to the, the guy that's been healed, he goes, Hey, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But then he answered the man who uh, the man who healed me, that the man that said to me, that's the one who who said, Take up your bed and walk. So really what's happening is is Jesus has had this encounter with this man. He tells him to take up his bed and walk. And as he's doing this, it's the Sabbath day in which all the Pharisees are around and they're watching as well. And this guy is now walking with his bed mat, and the Pharisees go, Hey, why are you walking? And And they're not near as concerned about how this guy was healed. They're just concerned that he's breaking the Sabbath laws. And they're asking, hey, why are you doing that? And here's what I love about this guy's response as he blame shifts. He goes, it wasn't me. I didn't heal myself of infirmity. I'm not, I'm not intending to break the law. The guy, I don't even know his name. He told me to walk and I'm walking. Like, what else do you want me to do? And that's what he's doing. These Pharisees are bigoting, And here's the deal. They have failed to see that a guy who was laying around for 30 years as a paralytic is now walking. And all they care about is who told you to walk? Like who has the authority to tell you to walk on the Sabbath? Which is kind of crazy, right? Which is honestly how I feel about some of our friends that when we start thinking about the power of God, we, we dumb it down to a, a couple of acts. Now, here's what I mean by that is, Listen when you think about Jesus and what he did here, this is extra, I'm just going to give it to you as kind of like a little two cents, okay? Uh, Jesus did not dip his hand in the water and throw it on the guy and go, hey, you're healed. He didn't even say, hey, you know what? I know they all beat you there, but I'm going to give you a temporary measure of the Holy Spirit to go and dip your foot in the water and then you'll be healed. Do you realize that Jesus didn't do anything with water and he could have? you know what Jesus did? By a spoken word, he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. You know why? And here's what, I want you to pay very close attention to this. Jesus, God, the Father, have always healed people by a word. He created the world by a word, and he restores life by a word. We don't need a supernatural um, essence of water or anything else in order for us to live in the power of God. It is by God's sovereign word that he creates and establishes new life. He creates and establishes, uh, at least in this particular case, um, physical hope. This guy is now walking throughout the city. You've got a group of Pharisees that are pretty frustrated by it. Um, So then they ask him uh, the question, well, hey, if you're walking around on the Sabbath and it wasn't you that did it, then who was it? They ask him that in verse 12. Who's the man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus withdrawn, as there was withdrawn uh, as there was a crowd in the place. So here's what's interesting, okay? Jesus heals him, says, take up your bed, walk. The Pharisees are frustrated. They ask him who the guy uh, was that healed him, and he goes, I, I don't even know. Like I don't have a clue. Now, real quickly, if you behold the power of God, you would think that you get the guy's name, <laughs> Right? I mean, maybe go, hey, dude, can I get your cell phone? Maybe we connect up and you tell me how you did this. Something. But there's none of that talk. I mean, basically the guy gets up, takes his bed mat, and walks. The Pharisees are frustrated. He doesn't even know who it was that did it. But look at verse 14, because here's the answer to it all. Afterward, after all of the, the clamor has kind of died down, Jesus found him, the paralytic, in the temple. And then look what he said to him. He goes, see, you are well. And then look what he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, the question is, what in the world does he mean by that? Like he finds his paralytic and he goes, hey, you are healed. Look, okay. And what he says in essence, he goes, you are physically good. But he goes, now you need to understand there's something more that I want to do. Go and sin no more. I guess my point in this is that I think oftentimes we think that the power of God always manifests itself in physical forms. And I would just say, I don't think it always does. But the power of God should always, always manifest itself in spiritual forms. See, This guy is walking around and he is probably joyful, uh, exuberant, excited. As he walks through the city, he can now feel and use his legs, which he hasn't been able to do for almost 40 years. People ask him who it was. He doesn't even know who it was that did it. Finally, Jesus shows up. And then Jesus doesn't say, hey, dude, run around uh, the tabernacle or the temple for me. Hey, let me see what you got. He didn't do that. What he does is he says, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the reason why is because he wants us to realize that the beholding the power of God leads to repentance and transformation, not fixed problems. Now, what I mean by that is that in our culture, in our day and age, it seems that a manifestation of the Spirit is oftentimes to fix problems. I love, uh, and I heard Joni erickson Tata. she shared this a handful of years ago, um, she is a paraplegic from the time she was young, and she said, "When I was young, I went searching for means of healing." She said, "I went to every church that did healing services. I went to every single place I potentially could, because I longed for healing." And she said, "And what's crazy is is she said, "I prayed and I begged for healing." But she said, what's crazy is as I was sitting in that. She says, I was always in the wheelchair section. And she said, and there was a bright light that would roam across the worship center and the auditoriums. And she said, and never once did that light land on the paraplegic section. Not one time did it land in the wheelchair section. She said, and I've been into dozens of these services. And she said, I began to ask myself the question, hey, why wouldn't it land there? And she began to pray to God, God, am I just too hard of a case for the power of God to land on my physical ailments? And when she said, and when she came to know Christ, she realized that absolutely um, the hard case wasn't about her physical ailment, but her spiritual condition. And she said, I realized that the power of the Holy Spirit is not nearly about my infirmity as much as it is about my transformation of the heart. And she says, for years, I've had now people, she said, for many years, as I've had um, Joni and Friends ministry, she said, I've had people come up and say, Joni, by faith, God wants to heal you. And I want to pray for you. And she says, I never deny them the opportunity to pray for me, but I always ask them to do something first. She says, when you pray for my physical healing, will you do something first? Would you pray for my dark heart? Would you pray for the ways that I'm so impatient and how oftentimes my tongue is is not reflective of God? She said, will will you begin praying at least for me, all the areas right now that God wants to heal in me? Because somehow or another, God's shown his power in all my weakness of my physical affirmities. And I'm like, she, I think, gets it. See, here's the deal the guy's problem wasn't solved when Jesus said, Get up, take your mat, and walk. Do you know why his problem wasn't solved? Because he didn't even know who solved the problem. All Jesus did was was a miracle. And what he does is he circles back around because what he wants this guy to realize is that, look, you can have all your circumstances changed, you can put down the bottle. You can get off of substances. Your marriage could be repaired briefly. Um, Your children could act according to the way you want them to. And you could miss the power of God because the power of God is not about you controlling your circumstances and it's not about them being changed. The power of God is about him manifesting his presence in your life even if he chooses not to tell you to get up and walk. And I think that's why he says to this guy, go and sin no more. Because Jesus didn't heal this guy to make his life happy. He healed him to make him holy. And listen, for some of us in this room, God may do a divine act of transformation by his power and his grace, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life that he could potentially heal you. Guys, I have seen a divine act of miracles about three or four times in my life where somebody had a tumor and they went back in and it was gone where somebody was going to be dead and, and they, they ended up living. Doctor, I can remember a doctor looking at me, a guy in this body um, many years ago, about year two, and, and he was dead. And he goes, he, he's the sickest, sickest patient in Parkland Hospital. He will not make it through the night. And I said, you know what? God's encouraging me to huddle up and I'll never forget what this doctor said. I'll never forget it. He goes, hey, you do what you want. And he goes, I I, I, I I commend you to pray for, you know, I like when people do that. But he goes, I I just, I don't want you to get your hopes up. I want you to realize that this is the sickest patient in Parkland. At which I'm like, okay, you don't know who my God is. And I did. I'm telling you, and I will never forget about 30 of us little family members. I mean, and I'm like, God, you You are, and it's a big, big prayer. Here's what I've come to know, is God, if he would have chose not to, it doesn't lessen his power in that moment. And I think that's what I want you to realize, whether he does or doesn't, he is still supernatural and sovereign. If he chooses to, great. But listen, he is not near as concerned about physical presence as he is a spiritual one. He's concerned more about your holiness than he is you being able to brag about what he's done in a physical manifestation. Like you, do you understand what I'm saying? So what I want you to realize is that Jesus does something incredible for this guy, but it's not about his physical ailments, it's about his sin problem. Verse 15, it says, the man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus. Now he's got his name, okay? He goes, it was Jesus that healed him. Uh, that's why the Jews were then persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father's working until now and now I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was also even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here was Jesus going around on the Sabbath and he's healed this guy who was a paralytic. The Pharisees are already frustrated because you don't heal a guy on the Sabbath and tell him to take his mat and walk because that would be blasphemous against God. You can't take your mat places, okay? That would be equivalent to you being right now in Israel on a Sabbath and uh, somebody about to load the elevator with you and a Jew going, hey, would you push the elevator button for me because I can't work on the Sabbath. So that's the issue at, at hand. Basically, they're frustrated because this guy's carried a mat. Now, there, there might've been a little bit of a, a leeway for somebody to pick up an invalid and carry him, but you just, you just can't have a guy healed and carrying his mat. That's the problem. Now, what's interesting is, as I read this passage about the Pharisees and, and them trying in some ways to say, hey, God doesn't allow this kind of blasphemous stuff. What is a little bit interesting to me, and, and I don't know if y'all have caught this as well, it is not wise for you to carry a mat on the Sabbath, but apparently you can plot a killing on that same day. That's what's happening. So basically they're mad because Jesus told the guy to get up and take his mat, but they are at the same time trying to figure out a way to kill this guy. Do you see the self-righteousness in that? The the problem sometimes with a pharisaical thought, that's the challenge. Either way, here's what I want you to realize is that Jesus knew that he had the authority to not only bring life, but give life, but he also knew that he had the authority to lay down life. And listen, friends, the reason that God wants us to behold His presence is because he desires for us to lay down our lives for him. He's not trying to make our lives more comfortable. He's not trying to make our lives more manageable. What God is trying to do is produce holiness in us, which is why Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. He goes, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Y'all see what he's saying there? He goes, you need to prepare yourself. So the story goes on. So Jesus said uh, to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows all that he is doing, uh, all he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. What Jesus is saying, he goes, hey, I have the authority to, to take up life. I have the authority that God has given me because I and the Father are one. That's what Jesus is telling this man. And then he goes on in verse 22. He says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus says, I am the creator, the sustainer, the recreator. and I am the one who will judge all men, the living and the dead. Verse 23 says that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And if you can imagine, he is bringing about angst and anxiety and frustration in these Pharisees. But then he says something really important. We're going to end with this, this in as far as chapter five. He goes, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And that's what he's talking about with this Paralytic. The paralytic, he's saying, hey, listen, when he went back and he found him again, he goes, hey, listen, I want you to realize something. I have healed you, you are well, now go and sin no more. Stop making excuses. Realize the power of God is now living inside of you and you should go and you should be marked. Why? Because the father has the authority to bring new life and to call you out of what you were into newness of life. That's what he's done he says the very same thing in John chapter 11, a handful of chapters over to Mary and Martha. They're frustrated because their uh, brother Lazarus has died. And Jesus says these words in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So when Jesus says to this paralytic, go and sin no more, what he is saying is, is you have Entered from death to life. See, when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he tells that to Lazarus, or when he tells the, the Pharisees, You've passed from death to life, what Jesus is saying is, is that you need to realize when eternity begins. And we have grown up in a culture where we think eternity begins when we take our last breath. Eternity does not begin when your life ends. Eternity begins the very moment that you throw off your shackles and chains and you follow Jesus Christ in a new life. Which is the most confusing thing because we have so many people that walk around and they would in some way say, you know what, I, I, I love Jesus and, and I, I want a relation with him, but I just can't kick my habit. I just can't get out of my, this, this funk, this, this place I'm stuck. And, and my question would be, hey, why? And and here's why. Do you know why? It's because you really don't wanna go on and sin no more. Really, that's the challenge in the American Christianity, the faith that we have, is you really don't wanna go on and sin no more. When Jesus says, leave where you've been and go and sin no more, you go, I kinda like my sin a little bit. It's a means of income sometimes. Sometimes it's a place where you're comfortable Sometimes it's a reminder of, of where you've been. Sometimes it's an excuse that you can give everyone around you for no nothing ever changing in your life. It just becomes a place where if you're not careful, you can live for a long, long, long time. And somehow you would say, well, I, I think I know Jesus, but there is no fullness, there is no power. And in many ways, there is no transformation. And friends, I would just say, I'm not sure that you understand And behold the power of God. Because when you behold the power of God, you go and you sin no more. And eternal life begins. Which brings me to this point. Beholding the power of God is not reserved namely just for paradise, but also for the present. It's not just, oh, one day I'll behold the power of God. Hey, one day I'll see him face to face. Hey, one day. No, listen, we know that 1 Corinthians 13 says, no, now we see him in a mirror dimly lit. One day we will say, see him face to face. But the reality is, is we can experience the fullness of God now if we begin to realize that our eternity, our eternal hope has already started for those of, of, of us who have a new life in Christ. And if you have a new life in Christ, the question is, is why do you continue going on and sinning when Jesus is clearly saying that believers in Christ who behold his glory and his power will go on and sin no more? I can give you verse after verse after verse about why it is we should leave and flee our youthful passions. 2 Timothy two twenty two. Why we should not continue to sin that grace would increase. Romans 6, 1. Why we should abide in him and the hope of glory. John 1, 1 John 1. Friends, we are to do something different. The power of God is reserved not just for paradise, for the present. Think about John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you have life and have it abundantly. What does that mean? Only in in eternity or no, now? Romans chapter uh, 15, Paul writes to the church of Rome. Verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit you would abound in hope. Consider what Paul writes to the church of Ephesus in chapter three, verses 14 to 21. I'm gonna read it quickly. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, dunamis, with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love, that you would have strength, dunamis, to comprehend with all the saints with the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? He goes on and says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power of our work that's within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever, amen. Which then brings the question, what in the world does it look like if we go and sin no more to behold the power of God and have his fullness living and breathing and active in our lives? What does that mean? And let me just real quickly tell you what I think it doesn't mean. What I don't think it means is that the power of God is displayed on our own terms. I don't think that the power of God is so that we could go around, proclaim to everybody uh, in the five stone colonnades in the pool of Bethesda saying, hey, look what I did, I, I'm healed. I called out to God, that the, the, the waters were stirred and hey, look what happened. It's not about us. It's not about our ability to brag about what God has done in us. So I think that there is a movement going across, I would say, the Christian culture now to, in some ways, um, display, and even, I would say, uh, potentially look down on other believers and say, hey, you haven't experienced the fullness of God. Namely, uh, rooted in uh, what we would oftentimes hear referred to as baptism of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like to be baptized with fire and water? Uh, Maybe you're like, I don't even have a clue what you're talking about. Listen, I would say, hey, um, you would do well Um, to to study into it a little bit, but not get caught up in it. But what I would tell you is this. There is a great movement that would say, hey, listen, if you're really going to be all that God wants you to be, then you ought to proclaim greater gifts, as found in 1 Corinthians 14. But I think that's why we have 1 Corinthians 13, which is love, that love abounds in all of those things. Um, So I would tell you that I do believe that supernatural and and incredible spiritual gifts still exist in this day, but what I would tell you is they're not to be displayed on our own terms. I don't believe that they are for our benefit to brag about who we are in Christ, but in order to make much of his name, which I see a great confusion uh, going around in some ways around the culture of saying, hey, look who I am and what power I possess, and I think that's a very dangerous place to live. I also think that much of that movement is rooted up and not uh, rooted in not knowing who the Holy Spirit is. Can I help you understand something? The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. You don't take a person, roll him up in a ball, and throw him across the room. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit doesn't flow out of vents. He doesn't, he doesn't fill rooms, he fills hearts. Acts 17 tells us the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in the hearts of his people. That's why you have John chapter one, that Jesus came to dwell among his people. You know how he does that? He tabernacles himself and he dwells among us. Why does he have to fill the room through the vents if he has filled hearts with his presence? That is the idea of understanding what it looks like in our terms. Listen, I think the idea of the fullness of God is not to display a grandeur in our life, but a daily commitment to his word. A.W. Tozer writes it in a way that I can understand. uh, And he equates it to a deer um, drinking by a nearby lake. And this is what he says. He goes, if you could ask the deer that goes quietly down to the edge of the lake for a refreshing drink, hey, have you received the fullness of the lake? The answer would be yes and no. I am full from the lake, but I've not received the fullness of the lake. I did not drink the lake. I only drank what I could hold of the lake. Now, let me ask you a question. If the deer goes back to the lake day by day, will he enjoy the fullness of the lake? Absolutely. And I think that's what Jesus means when he tells the paralytic of 38 years, take up your mat, go and walk, and hey, by the way, sin no more. What he's saying is, behold the power and the presence of God in your daily life and continually come back to the one who gives refreshment. You don't need the pull of Bethesda. You don't need a miraculous stir of the angelic form. What you need is to go and sin no more. The Holy Spirit take up residence in your life and you are to walk as a new creation. Friends, I can tell you, I don't display supernatural gifts in my life. I don't have gifts of of tongue, in some ways, maybe a prophetic word from God's word, but I can't see the the future. Um, What I can do is tell you exactly what God's proclaimed his word. I know that we're in perilous days. I know we better be ready. I know that there's great hope in eternity, and I know that I can live in the fullness of that hope now. And so that's what it looks like to live in the fullness of God. I don't have anything to impress you by. What I do is I have the Word of God, and I know how to proclaim it, to teach it in season, out of season, reproof, correct, rebuke, training in righteousness. That's all I got. Nothing else. Nothing. Nothing miraculous. Matter of fact, you come to my house, and you'll see less than miraculous. You'll see an ordinary guy who knows Jesus. That's all I got to offer. And I know that if I'm not dipping in the lake of his grace daily, then I'm a mess. Because I got nothing. I got no magic tricks. I got nothing coming out. I don't have a special mist that I spray on myself. I don't have fairy dust. I don't have Holy Spirit oil. I don't got nothing of that. I got God's word. And I got his spirit living in me. And listen, I believe wholeheartedly that's what it looks like to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I think that's enough. He does too. Praise the Lord. Thank you, still. <laughs> the power of God, friends, is not suppressed or is suppressed by fear. You need to know that. Um, Second Timothy 1:7 says, "For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control." Friends, there are a lot of us right now that the reason that we don't have the power of God in our lives is because we're fearful of the days ahead. What if, what if we had to leave our old life behind? What if we had to give up what we have treasured all our lives? What if we had to give up the excuses? What if we really had to dip fully into God's word? What if we had to create new disciplines in our life? Hey, what if we in this culture um, have a faith that begins to be persecuted? What if the idea of Christianity as we know it begins to change right before the lens of our own eyes? What happens? Listen, we don't shrink back in fear. And friends, I would tell you that the power of God and beholding it means that we don't get suppressed by fear. But we continue to trust God even when we can't see it. Here's what you do need to know if you continue that 2 Timothy 1, seven, For God uh, gave us not a spirit of fear, but a power of love, self-control. It goes on in verse 8 and says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, of his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What you need to know is the fullness of God is not suppressed by our hardship. So while it is suppressed by our fear, it's not suppressed by our hardship. What do I I mean by that? What do do I mean by that? It, It means that your life getting more difficult doesn't change who God is or the power to be displayed in your life. And the reason I think the way I do and i be honest why i think about all of the manifestation of the spirit is because if the manifestation is to be so spectacular that we can speak and things happen that we can in some ways manipulate or become our own god then i struggle with why jesus was persecuted unto death i also struggle why all the apostles lost their life I struggle why hundreds of early New Testament martyrs lost their life, and by their faith, they couldn't change their circumstance. And I struggle with the Apostle Paul, although marked by freedom why he never changed his circumstances. I struggle with the Christianity that, in some ways, measures itself by being able to change those things. Because think about about Paul, and think about what it looks like to live in the fullness of God and the freedom of God. They go, you know what? We're going to murder you. We're going to murder you. We don't like you. You're going to shut you up, we're going to murder you. He goes, to die is gain. You know what? No, we're going to let you live. He goes, oh, to live is Christ. <laughs> you know what? We're going to put you in prison. Oh, hey, great. I'm going to sing to the Lord. and I'm going to convert your guards at the same time. <laughs> you know what? No, we're, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to torture you. He goes, hey, praise the Lord. Bring it on. Because I don't consider the suffering to the present time to be acquainted with the future glory that God's going to give me or you're gonna be abandoned by your friends. He goes, hey, I'm gonna pray for them. And hey, if you don't mind, just tell them to bring the parchments and my cloaks so I'm warm. That's what it looks like. That's what he means when he says, Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What he says is in plenty or in want, I have everything I need because the fullness of God lives in me. My circumstances can be in shambles, but my life can be filled with the power and the presence of the peace of God. And this is what I want you to hear. Please hear this. The power of God is not on your ability to manipulate or control the storm. It's not even in your authority to stop the storm. The power of God on display is his peace and his joy and his eternal presence in the midst of your storm that helps you endure it. And I think that's where we miss it. We think that if we have enough faith in the measure of God's fullness, that we could just stop the storm. And I could just tell you, Paul never stopped the storm. All he did is say, God, help me to endure the storm. And a great many of martyrs and a great many of men and women of the faith have learned much in the midst of perilous storms. And we would do well to do the same, to realize that God doesn't change even if our infirmities remain. And God doesn't change if he removes our infirmities because the goal is the same every single time. Go and sin no more. Why did God's spirit overshadow this precious little girl named Mary? It's so that she would have the power to display the presence of God to a world that needed to know how not to sin anymore. And it's not based off our physical ability. It's not based off our intellectual capacity. It's not based off our social status. It's based off the goodness of God when he intervenes lies, and he goes, get up and walk. So can I just tell you real quickly of the hundreds of encounters of grace and power and fullness that I've experienced over the last decade? Can I tell you about one that I just had last week? talking to a guy, share my faith with him. At the very end, I can see the fetters removed. And he goes, I get it. And I go, and hey, can I just tell you something? I said, never miss the power of God on display in your life. Because I said, dude, an hour and a half ago, you walked in this restaurant and you were blind. You're walking out and you can see. And it was glorious. He could see. And the power of God in its fullness has manifested itself even in the way that I've already seen in the last couple of weeks how he's beginning to sin no more. I can see as he shares his story and he goes, hey, I met Jesus. And there's a lot of us that we've missed that. And even this Christmas, the very thing that God wants you to do is not get caught up in glamour and lights, but to get caught up and the Son of God, and go and sin no more. Listen, if it wasn't for kids, I wouldn't open a single gift this Christmas. And the reason why is because there, I've got the greatest gift I need, and I am perfectly content in what I have. And I, I'm genuinely, I mean that. To go out and all the, 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 the junk that you have to get out to just to buy a gift not only robs me of, of peace in some ways, um, it makes me want to murder somebody on the Sabbath. And for what? So so we have one more thing that we don't need? The power and the presence of God is all we need and is exhibited when we go and say no more. Friends, may may that be written on the tablet of our heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your word. Um, Lord, knowing that all of us are one phone call away from our lives being shipwrecked. Every single one of us, there's one phone call away uh, from uh, some of us saying our peace and the presence and the power of God being stripped right away from us. But Lord, it's not the case if we realize that in good times and in bad, you're the one who strengthens us. Lord, the power and the fullness of God can be on display. And I pray, Lord, that it's not displayed in the gifts that I have to offer the body of Christ as much as it is in my obedience to, towards you to live a God-filled life, that I display the goodness of God in the way my life is marked and changed by your Spirit, enabling me to do what is right. And the words of Paul in Romans seven eighteen, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I know to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out unless, God, your Spirit helps me. And so God, would you help me and would you help my friends to go and sin no more? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.